want to welcome you this morning to Friends Church. I am Steve, one of the pastors on staff here, and we're glad that you are, have joined us. If you haven't had a chance yet, I'd encourage you to take a look at the program that you have been given. There's a, in there, there are a few needs, you know, a church always has needs for help here and there, and there's a couple places, and I can tell you um, I am 100% sure that that really isn't all the needs. Those are some of the more pressing needs. If, you are, if, if you're looking for a place to serve, uh, maybe that's one of them that's in the program there, but maybe you'd just like to say, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to serve. I'd like to uh, be part of what's going on here at Friends Church. Um, just pray that you would uh, maybe fill that out. Let us know on your Connect card, and we will um, get to, back to you on that. Uh, it's also on the back of that card or back of that program is the scripture readings for this week. Uh, hopefully you've been in following along in our series, Age of God, Modern Message. Have been, we've been reading through the book of John and we've been uh, combing through at a slow pace and looking forward to uh, what God has to, for us to hear. And uh, those readings for this week are in there. If you're behind, you know, it doesn't take long to catch up, but maybe just jump right in and join us as we go along. We're excited about what God's doing. We've been having some great small groups and looking forward to continuing that over these next weeks. Um, last week, uh, Pastor Eric, I think in a very, very, very well presented the position of a Pharisee and why they were as, um, I guess, um, difficult with Jesus as they appear to be, why these keeping the rules were so critical and a great background to that. And I want you to hang on to that because this book of John continues to build and it's building here as we look today, we eventually will get to John chapter 10 of this, this conflict between these religious leaders, Pharisees, and Jesus. And we see in chapter 8, uh, verse 1 there, that where Eric was last week, this woman who was brought to him who was caught in adultery. And it was the leaders and the Pharisees that brought them. And as Pastor Eric talked about it, and in the end, as, as Jesus spoke and as Jesus stood with the woman, the Pharisees left. In fact, it says all the men left, from the older to the younger, if you remember that. And so they're gone. And now Jesus... I guess does what only Jesus could do. He chases them down. He goes to their place. You know, if they're not going to come, if they're going to leave, he ends up and then he immediately sees that he goes into the temple. And he goes into the temple and he rubs shoulders with the Pharisees again. And we see this happening all over again, all this conflict that is between Jesus and the Pharisees. In fact, it starts off with the discussion of ancestry. In fact, they're wondering, they says, Jesus, you know, you're doing all these things, but we don't even know who you are. We don't know where you come from. We don't even know who your daddy is. Who's your daddy? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you, if you knew me, you would know my daddy. <laughs> if you would know me, you knew me, you would know the father. And he says, and as far as from where I'm from, I'm really, I'm not from this world. Now put yourself, I like to put yourself in the shoes of the people there. The people here are listening. They've seen Jesus do things. And they're talking. They say, where are you from? And he says, well, I'm not from this world. I can see the eyes roll. If that had happened here, someone came in here and did some neat things. We said, where are you from? Well, I'm not from this world. What world are you from? 
And he actually goes on, he says, I'm not from this world, but you are from this world. And you're caught in your sin in this world, and you're going to die in those sins. And it says there that many believed on his name. Not all, but many did. The story goes on there in chapter 8 of John that the many who believed hung around him. And they're asking more questions. And this question of ancestry comes up again. I guess they're hung up on whose daddy's who or whatever. And they, they finally says, our father, our father is Abraham. How about that? And Jesus says, no, that's not quite right. Your father's the devil. Your father's Satan. Now, I don't know about you. I think you probably know this. I knew this, and I think Jesus knew this. To go up to somebody and say, your father is the devil is not a way to win friends and influence people. <laughs> you usually don't go up and say, your father's the devil. You're a child of Satan. I want to go play golf. <laughs> that doesn't happen, you know? That's not the next sentence. You're just, it's usually not what happens. And it says the, the people's response to him was, oh, yeah? Well, you're demon-possessed. If we're a child of Satan, you're demon-possessed. And chapter 8 ends with it's them, the people picking up the stones, ready to kill Jesus. I think that's tomorrow's reading. I think that's tomorrow's reading for you. Picking up the stones, ready to kill him. It says that Jesus slips out of the temple goes out on the highways and byways and he finds in chapter 9 a blind man, a man blind from birth. And lo and behold, Jesus comes up to him and he, he, he heals him. The man can see, but ugh, it was on the Sabbath. Another problem generated with the Pharisees. And so there's this argument going back and forth. It ends with this. The Pharisees say, or Jesus says, I have come to give sight to the blind and to those who think they can see to show that they are blind. And the Pharisee says, are you calling me blind? Are you calling us blind? And Jesus' response is where we pick up today, chapter 10 of John. This is actually, the reading won't come up in your reading until Saturday. But it's a powerful passage. And I think we need to look at it this morning. Are we blind? Are you calling us blind? And in John chapter 10, if you have your pew Bibles there, it's page 300, 732. Jesus says this. Verily, truly, I tell, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief, and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gates for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Where he has brought out all, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now, if you have your red letter Bible, the red letter stop there for a second. And John interjects this in verse 6. Jesus used this figure of speech. But the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. 
Therefore, Jesus said again, and we pick up the red again. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have, no, I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. This is, again, this is the commentary that John adds. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed, stark, grave, and mad. <laughs> Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Are you calling us blind? And Jesus starts in with this talk of a shepherd and sheep and robbers. But it was a story and it was a scenario that they knew all too well. In fact, they knew very well. Everyone standing around there would have known the role of a shepherd. Shepherd had been a, a staple in the, in the Israelite nation from the Old Testament up through today or up through that day. In fact, if you go back and look through the Old Testament, you'll see all kind of references to God as our shepherd. Psalm 81, the Lord, the shepherd of Israel. Isaiah 40, 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, Israel. Ezekiel, as a shepherd looks after his flock. And so they were, they were very familiar with what a shepherd was. And they were very familiar with God taking the role of a shepherd in Israel. And so as he was speaking, they were getting a picture of God through this illustration of a shepherd. And here, then in verse 2, Jesus says this, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And so he expounds on it a little bit. And he says, the one who enters the gate is the shepherd. And when the shepherd goes through, unlike the robbers who climb over the wall and try to, try to take the sheep, the, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. They hear the voice. They know the voice. They respond to the voice. They follow the voice. As opposed to the robber, he says, the sheep will follow the shepherd. They knew a lot about shepherd. But they also knew a lot about sheep. 
In fact, you might remember Psalm 103, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. All through the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a sheep of of God's God's pasture, and God is the shepherd. They also knew a lot about sheep, the good and the bad. One writer says the, the sheep have these three Ds. They're dumb. They're directionless, and they're defenseless. <laughs> Someone came up to me afterwards, the first service, and says, out of fourth, delicious. <laughs> but, but okay. <laughs> Dumb, directionless, defenseless. Others have written, sheep are foolish. Sleep are, sheep are slow. Sheep are stubborn. Sheep are dependent. And that's who we and the Israelite nation, the Israelite nation has been compared to, sheep. Through the Old Testament, referred to as sheep. And, you know, at times Israel was slow, lost, stubborn. Uh, a good Old Testament word is stiff-necked. <laughs> Broken down. And so they completely would understand the role of a shepherd and the role of the sheep and the problem with robbers. But as John tells us in verse 6, they had no clue what Jesus was saying. You ever talk with somebody and they're talking and you have no clue what they're saying? This happens to me all the time when I'm talking to Pastor Jim. You that know him, you know, says, Jim, slow down, finish a sentence. <laughs> I was talking to his wife after the first service. She goes, sentence? Get him to finish a word. <laughs> you know, you know, we have no clue. Jim, slow down, start over. I need some context to what you're talking about. Well, I don't think Jesus' problem was he needed to slow down and finish sentences. I think Jesus' problem here was he was speaking to some people who are spiritually blind. They're not understanding what he's saying. They're not understanding what he's trying to convey. And so he starts in and he starts again and he says, well, verily, verily, I say unto you. He says, he said, I am the gate. I'm, I'm the very door that you come through and, 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 the, and the sheep, they follow me. They don't follow the robbers. They won't go after the robbers even though the robbers try to get them. And then he finally hits them with the point of the message. Verse 11, and again in verse 14, he says this, I am the good shepherd. In case you're wondering what I'm getting at here, folks, you've been asking me who I am. You've been asking me where I come from. You've been asking me who my daddy is. Well, let me tell you something. I'm the good shepherd. And they, when they would hear that word shepherd, they'd go, whoa. He's the shepherd? He's the shepherd? I, I look at this. I am the good shepherd. And we've been talking about shepherd. There's two words here that I think just stuck out to him. He said, I am the good shepherd. And he says, I am the good shepherd, an adjective that strike would have struck them. You know, this is one of the seven times in John where Jesus says, I am. Seven statements of I am. Starts off there with, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And this 
chapter here, he says to here, we already read through, I am the gate, I am the, the way, I'm the door, the way that you come in. He, he kind of follows that up later when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one way. But here he says, but I also, I am the shepherd. And if you want to know who I am, and if you want to know who God is, and if God is revealing himself to us and what he's like, he's like a shepherd. And I am the good shepherd. I can, I can hear the questions. You're the shepherd? You're the shepherd? And their minds, as maybe yours have, have immediately gone to those words penned by their beloved king, King David in Psalm 23, when he says this, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Could, could Jesus be saying, I'm the Lord? Is he making a claim that he really is out of this world? The Lord is my shepherd. The relationship that David had with his shepherd, the shepherd who would watch over him, care for him, love him, provide for him. He said, that's, that's my Lord. I, one thing I see in this verse, and one thing I see in Psalm 23, is how intensely personal it is. In fact, a lot of the Psalms are that way when we read through them. Intensely personal. I read a lot and hear a lot about our society being very individualistic. And it is. We, are, we tend to be individualistic. We, you know, we're not... We're not we don't all live in a, all of our family and extended family and, and com, you know, community like they used to and not all next door usually. And, and so we, we, we're, it's a different society. And sometimes it's, it's looked at like it's, it's really, really bad. And sometimes I, I look at this and I say, but there, there are throughout the, throughout the scripture and throughout the Bible, God's mercy, God's love, God speaking to us is intensely personal. It's one-on-one. The Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd, mine. And I see this in David. Because David knew all about a shepherd. Because David was a shepherd. <laughs> he goes on, and he, I think he describes what he thinks a good shepherd is like when he says this, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You see, a good shepherd provides when Jesus is revealing himself as the good shepherd, he's revealing himself as the provider of these good things, provider of rest. In Matthew, he says, come to me, all ye who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. Lying down in green pastures. I know right now, this time of year, isn't it nice to think of about 77 degrees? That's my perfect temperature. Nice, thick grass. You're laying down. Blanket. Yeah. He provides all of our needs. Bible, we've been hearing over the weeks that he provides the food. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. He leads me beside still waters. He provides the life-giving, living water. 
and ephod provides protection. Protection from predators, both human, the thieves, <laughs> and other predators. It's interesting, Jesus in John 10 kind of differentiates between the kind of shepherd that he is and these thieves that come. In fact, in John 10, 10, he says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. He says there's these, these, these folks that have come in, and, and these ones that have come before, they're, they're not the prophets, but there are, they could be, oh, maybe he's talking about the Pharisees. Maybe he's talking about some of those that have laid these heavy rules and laws on these people. Maybe he's talking about some of those um, um, messiahs, that have, so-called messiahs that have come. But he says they've come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you had have life and have it abundantly. Now, I don't know about you, I sat through a lot of sermons over the years where this scripture has been taught. I, you know, I've heard on the radio, I've read, and, and it seems like most times what I hear is this, is Jesus is saying, I come to have life abundantly. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry if I woke the kids up. You know, or, or life to the full, and we stress the abundantly, and we stress the full. I want, I want you not to miss something, though. I think, I really think of when Jesus is sharing this, his, his emphasis is on life. I can see, they come, these thieves, they come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come, you could have life. Life. An abundant life. The emphasis on the life. Jesus came to give us life. When David wrote, he wrote, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And then he said this, he restores my soul. That restoration is life. He brings me life. And it's intensely personal. In fact, you could, the way it's worded in the Hebrew, you could read it this way. He makes me lie down. He, he makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores me. Me. Restoration. Life-giving. You know what it is to restore, don't you? A lot of us or some of you have tried to restore something over the years. We were at a, a seminar a few weeks ago, and we were uh, in a semicircle. And the, the leader had asked the question, what is the one thing, what's the one thing that if God asked you to give it up, you would say, mm, I don't know. <laughs> what's the one thing that would make you pause and say, can I give that up? We went around the room. Most of us try to be very spiritual. You know, oh, my kids, you know, Lord, or my spouse, my family, you know, all of those. Until we got to a fellow preacher. He says, boy, I got this vintage classic automobile in my garage. I've been restoring it for years. I don't know. <laughs> I go, 
really, a car? <laughs> it's an autographed baseball, maybe, but no. <laughs> A car? <laughs> but he had been restoring it. He had been taking something that was broken, something that was dirty, something that had rusted out, something of no value, and is restoring it to something precious. He was bringing life where there was not life. In our home, about the only thing that ever gets restored is, are the things that I've broken. <laughs> you know? But it's broken things that need restored. It's things that have gotten dirty and grimy that need restored. Have you ever seen some of that artwork, famous, classic, ancient artwork that has been dirtied over the years and, and just the, the dust and everything has settled in and darkened it and somehow they got the chemicals, they very carefully go and restore it and bring it to life. In the 1980s and 1990s, they did that to the Sistine Chapel. 500 years old almost to the paintings of Michelangelo and they went in just cleaned because all the dirt and grime and the smoke from the candles over the years had dulled it. And they came and they brought life as all of a sudden the, the colors popped like they were meant, originally meant to do. Jesus says, I've come to give life. The psalmist says, he restores my soul. The question is, and here's a good question, if you are a member of the flock, if you're a sheep and God's been tending for you, he's been leading you beside still waters, he's been refreshing your soul, he's been, he's been making you lie down in green pastures, he's been doing all things, why does your soul need restored? Why, why, why do our souls get to a point where they need restored? The psalmist in Psalm 40, 11, he says this, 42, 11, excuse me, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why you, are you in turmoil within me? I appreciated what Kim said earlier. I think even sheep can have a rough week. <laughs> have you had a rough week? Remember, we are sheep. Remember the three Ds? <laughs> Dumb, just, just directionless, defenseless. The grime the dust, the dirt, the smoke of this world takes a toll on our souls. Our souls can be dirtied. Our souls can be cast down, as it says here. Um, 50 years ago, 1970, a man named Philip Keller wrote a book, Become a Classic, it's called a, a Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And it's a beautiful picture of God's provision for us through Psalm 23. Philip Keller was actually a missionary son born in Kenya. And before he began traveling the world, he was a shepherd. And so when he writes, he writes as one who knows. Most of us don't really know the life of a shepherd. But he knew the life of a shepherd. And so he writes beautifully about this. And, and he talks about this, this scripture, are you cast down my soul? And he tells of experiences of dealing with sheep who are cast down, downcast. Or as the old English phrase goes, simply cast. In fact, a cast sheep is one that has simply fallen and can't get up. We have a picture of it here. 
This is a typical cast sheep. What you see here is the sheep will go and find a place that looks comfortable, usually a little hollow, maybe a little ditch, somewhere that just looks like it's a, a nice place to lay down. And we'll go in there and settle in. But as they settle in, they say, well, you know, I'd like to get a little more comfortable. And so they start, and once they start becoming a little more comfortable, their center of gravity shifts, and their body will move. And before they know it, their legs aren't touching the ground. What can happen next then, and what typically happens, is the sheep will, will panic and start flailing around a little bit, which makes it go even more to where you can see, and you see pictures of them laying on their back and their feet straight up. This is one that's been cast trying to take a nap or a rest in a little ditch. Keller talks about being cast and the sheep being cast helplessness. This cat, what will happen here is because of the position it's in, gases will start to build up in the stomach and circulation will be cut off to the legs. If it's a hot, sunny, Middle Eastern day, maybe two to three hours to live. If it's a cold, rainy, cloudy day, maybe two to three days. But the sheep is out there. And he talks about the the responsibility of the shepherd to care for the cast sheep. He says there would be days, sometimes two to three days a week, where I'd be counting my sheep, and there's one missing, two missing. My assumption was they were cast. And he said I would go out, and I'd go, and I'd find that cast sheep. And he said he would come up to it, and when he would find the cast sheep, he would get down, and the first thing you do is roll it back over onto its side. Then once you get it on its side, you step over it, and between your legs, you lift it up. <laughs> Sometimes he has to rub the legs to take care of it to get it to go, and then you let it go, and sometimes if its legs are still too weak, it'll just fall down, you gotta pick it up again. He says it could take quite some time before the sheep could walk. He says this about Psalm 23. One of the greatest revelations of the heart of God given to us by Christ is that of himself as our shepherd. He has the same identical sensations of anxiety, concern, and compassion for cast men and women as I had for sheep. The women who are men who are broken, who are cast, who are struggling, who can't get up on their own. God's love, what God presents to us as a shepherd, is he loves us so much. You might be thinking of a story like that. 99 sheep in the fold, one missing. Cast? Maybe. The shepherd left it all to go get that one. He's a good shepherd. Uh, it's, it's not on the screen, but Keller adds this. He says, many people have the idea that when a child of God falls, God becomes disgusted, fed up, and even furious with him. That simply is not so. God, like the shepherd, goes after us passionately seeking the lost. 
He loves us that much. What's the story teaching us of the heart of God? Keller goes on and says this. It explains his magnanimous dealing with down-and-out individuals for whom every human society, even human society, has no use. It reveals why he wept over those who spurned his affection. It discloses the depth of his understanding of undone people to whom he came eagerly and quickly, ready to help, ready to save, ready to restore. He came to all of those, all of us, with our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups. You know, when he found the sheep, it says the angels in heaven were dancing, they were rejoicing. That's what we call when, we, when we're picked up, when, we, when the Lord comes and scoops us up in his arms and carries us and, and begins the process of restoring us. That's why we call it celebrate recovery and not tolerate recovery. <laughs> you know, what, what would it be? I'm going to TR tonight. We tolerate recovery. <laughs> no, we're going to CR, celebrate recovery. We celebrate what God's doing because he has the heart of the shepherd who goes after us and seeks after us. That's why the heart of God through Jesus Christ is seen with a woman at the well, five times married, living with some guy, and says, hey, I have living water for you. That's why he stands with the woman caught in adultery. That's why he heals the blind and says, give glory to God. But maybe that's why this is the greatest act of of Jesus in restoration is what he did for his own disciple, Peter. Peter, cast down, defeated. I messed up big time. Peter, do you ever know, do you know this man, Jesus? Do you know this Nazarene? No, I never seen him, never heard of him. Wouldn't recognize him if I did see him. Who, who are you talking about? Never seen him. Can you imagine that time after resurrection when he came up to Jesus, was approached by Jesus, waiting maybe in his mind for that anger, that disgust to come out. Instead, it was patience, love, tenderness. Jesus approached Peter just like the shepherd approaches the cash sheet, very gently, picking him up, setting him aside, helping him stand on his feet. That's the picture of the Savior, of the shepherd. The picture of God's heart for us. Jesus begins to conclude his teaching. Verse 14, he says this, I'm the good shepherd. Again, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. He doesn't just pick us up, but he's laid his life down for us. He's telling us here to bring us a life, to bring us abundant life, to restore us is going to cost him his life. And that's the message. But this shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. These Pharisees who knew the law, they knew the word, would have known Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. 
And by his wounds, we are healed. The restoration comes. Salvation, life comes through the wounds. The price that Jesus Christ paid. And he goes on and says this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. (laughs) We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know what's ironic about this? The good shepherd, according to Scripture, becomes the good lamb, the sheep, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, Jesus Christ gave his life for us. So that when we're downcast, when we're cast, when we failed, when we've messed up, when we've blown it big time, he doesn't come to us in anger and rage, but he comes to us passionately and tenderly to pick us up and to celebrate. But it cost him everything. It cost him his life. This morning... We're going to remember that. One of the ways that the Christian church over years has recalled and remembered the sacrifice of the lamb, this good shepherd that gave his life and sacrificed his life for us, one of the ways that we have remembered that is through together taking the Lord's Supper or communion. And this morning we're going to do that. And I pray that as you do that, you would remember this sacrifice of the good shepherd. Remember what he has done to restore you and to restore me. We're going to ask those who are serving to come at this time and prepare to distribute the elements. Uh, Here at French Church, um, we do not say you need to be a member of French Church. You don't even have to be a tender of French Church. The only thing we ask is that uh, you be one of those believers. And uh, that you would receive this as a remembrance of what Christ did for you. If that's not you today, feel free just to pass it on. But we pray that as we take these elements, the bread and the juice, to remember and celebrate the life and the death of our Lord and Savior, that it would be precious to us because it reveals his heart that would give himself for us, cast down people. As they distribute the bread, uh, would you hold on to it? I'll come back up, and then we'll take it together, and then we'll do the same with the juice afterwards. But let's pray. Father, I pray that as we receive these this morning, that, Lord, that we would be reminded of that great sacrifice you made for us where the shepherd gave his life for the flock. We are forever grateful, and we receive these with grateful hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.
Years later, Paul wrote these words, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. that flows like a river washing over me fount of heaven love of Christ overflowing me thank you Jesus you set me
Paul goes on in the same way. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you stand with me? This week, as you go, allow the Lord to guide you into those green, dark, luscious pastures. Take time to take in that living water as he leads you by the streams of still water. And allow him to restore you refresh you, give you new life in those areas where maybe you've been feeling cast down, those areas of struggle, those areas of brokenness. Like a good shepherd, one with tenderness, love, and patience, he's coming to wrap you in his arms. Pick you up. Go knowing that this week. Live in that serve the Lord. You're dismissed.